If Johan Cruyff was still alive, he'd have been turning in his grave as the Dutch national team marked the fifth anniversary of his passing with an if, ignominious defeat If Johan Cruyff was Istanbul. alive, he would not be in his grave, wouldn't he? That, that, that's the joke, Paul. Oh, can, sorry. Can I, send that meme to, <laughs> can I send that meme to you? It's Friday, March 26th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Vaccine Mediator, and with me today is Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Personal Vote Counter, and also Dutch News' nomadic cake-scrumping Editor-in-Chief Robin Pascoe. Yeah, hopefully she will join us later. <laughs> yeah, but at the moment uh, there seem to be some kind of problems with that. Uh, 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 Robin seems to have been cancelled by Zoom, so uh, whether or not we will actually see her at any point is uh, is kind of in the lap of Zoom. She, she, she's having a bit of a Kaiser Alonkin moment. <laughs> exactly. Going wrong. At least it's not a fuck up you can see from outer space, right? So, exactly. Uh, can al- yeah. Can always be worse. <laughs> so it's not that bad. No, no, no. Yeah, hopefully yeah. we will uh, hear more about uh, from Robin uh, later in the podcast. Um, yeah. Gordon, you are a vaccine mediator. What's that about? Well, I've got, uh, as we know, um, nobody's being vaccinated at the moment. Literally no. nobody. I mean, you hear of people in their 90s who are still waiting for their first invitation. But I did get an invitation for a vaccine really? today. Yeah, I got a what? letter from I got a letter from the health ministry. Um, well, it came, uh, although it actually came via the uh, Sociale Versicherungsbank, and it wasn't for me. It was oh. for the uh, a, a person who uh, gives uh, my son music coaching, who is cancer, who is classed um, uh, as a uh, as a zorfelena, as a as a, as, yeah. as a care as a care assistant, and therefore uh, she gets priority vaccine, even though she spends and and she's a lovely person. I'm delighted that she's got this opportunity, but the fact is she spends thirty minutes a week with my son, looking after yeah. him. Um, and so, but she and I'm asked to uh, apply for a vaccine on her behalf. Uh, but I, yeah, but, but, but I, as a primary carer for my two children, who spends my whole time with them, um, uh, to, to have to have to wait in the queue. So it seemed a little bit bizarre that suddenly, uh, the, the the way the classification works uh, seems seems very strange. You got her, eight, wait wait a minute. Yeah. You got her invitation. No, I I got I got a letter basically inviting me to apply for a vaccine on her behalf because you are in close contact with her. I think because she's in close contact with a number of students um, who uh, she gives coaching to at her home. Uh, I think therefore the, 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 she therefore she classes as a care worker effectively, hmm. and 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 because of the you know it's a very bureaucratized way of doing things basically because she ticks the box marked um, you know healthcare worker. Um, yeah. Uh, she gets priority for the vaccine, even though yeah, you know, this isn't somebody who works in a hospital, right? She's looking no. after patients twenty-four hours a day. Um, she gives music tuition to uh, children with special needs a couple of uh, what, for a couple of hours a week. Yeah, but nevertheless, okay. she, she's put in that uh, she's put in that group. But it just seems seems bizarre that uh, nothing personal against her, but it just seems bizarre that uh, that someone like that is given priority for the vaccine when people in their eighties are still waiting. Yeah. So, some <laughs> yeah, it's all very strange yeah. indeed. It also yeah. seems it just seems strange on a personal level that I got the invitation to apply for her <laughs> vaccination, but not, but, yeah. but but I but but I as the yeah as a person looking after my kids and being exposed to them picking up the vaccine in class potentially um, get nothing. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, it seems very bizarre indeed, and I stopped yeah. understanding anything about the Dutch vaccination <laughs> program uh, months ago. So I will not try and understand this because I know I will, I won't. But yeah, and uh, Paul, you've been uh, diving into the uh, individual vote counts uh, this week. Uh, I noticed a lot, and uh, people uh, people getting uh, large numbers of press preference votes. I haven't really, actually. I, I okay. checked some uh, some people, indeed. Uh, someone I know is from uh, the the Westland, uh, which is uh, l- like just west from Delft, and mm. he uh, he campaigned uh, very heavily over there. Uh, so I, I I looked up how many votes he got there, and um, on on my new favorite website called verkiesingsite.nl, you can uh, they have a tool, and you can look up any candidate and see uh, how many votes they got. And um, and how sp- how well spread it is over the country, and you really see that he only got votes in the Westland. So yeah, he uh, he was very good at campaigning over there. And I checked also how many votes Hank Cole got, and he uh, right. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't get many votes, but uh, 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 his share was very well spread over the country. So yeah, a lot oh, of. All right. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you not say that Hank Kroll got uh, fewer votes than um, was it? Trots uh, op Nederland. Then Trots op Nederland. That's right. Yeah. 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 Who, who, who no one actually realized was still going. No, I completely, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know the party still existed. It was founded by Rita Verdonk, um, yeah. the arch nemesis of uh, Mark Rutte in Indeed. 2006. Uh, she won, uh, she lost narrowly from um, Mark Rutte the VVD leadership election, uh, but the election after that, she uh, she won more preference seats than Mark Rutte was the number one, so that was very awkward. And then yeah. um, a couple of months later, she was kicked out of the VVD party because she was simply too annoying, and she founded her own party. <laughs> and it was initially polled to get 24 seats, which is just an enormous share, especially for a, for a new party. But uh, the election after that, she she didn't manage to win a f- win in a single seat. So yeah, yeah, she. Uh, I, I thought her her party was abolished, but it still exists. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of the most apparently. spectacular uh, political career. T- spins I think I've ever seen indeed uh, the, and the, the they have the most um, hilarious campaign video ever yes. yeah. um, I think we should link to that I, I've we're seen gonna, it we're gonna it's just tremendous yeah it is it is just yeah. uh yeah which basically kind of portrays the netherlands as a disaster zone with yeah, terrible a terrible effects of makeup yeah 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 <laughs> uh yeah we will link to this video we must link to this and you must see yes. it it's uh, it is uh, it's uh, it's a uh, it's, uh, it's a precious piece of uh, political uh, dutch political history i think yeah okay well talking about uh, political careers in tailspin that uh, may be uh, to slide in nicely into the op of the week uh, uh, Paul so uh, yeah, yeah well, what's been going on it was quite an eventful day on uh, well it's been quite an eventful week all around for, for, for cabinet ministers isn't it yeah but 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 especially Thursday was very eventful <laughs> and this uh uh, I I had an opf of the week in mind on Thursday morning, but every everything changed during the day, and uh, this is just one of the uh, uh, few things that happened on Thursday. We will talk about everything that happened else later in the podcast, but this is just this is just yeah. uh, the opf um, uh, I managed to isolate from this eventful day. Right. Uh, it all started on Monday when it was announced that Deputy Economy Minister Mona Kaiser was tested positive for coronavirus. Kaiser was present at the weekly ministerial council on Friday, but Health Minister Hugo de Jonge said the other ministers present did not have to go in quarantine because they had kept one and a half meter distance throughout the meeting. He did advise them, though, to take a test. Um, many people felt that it would have been wiser for the members of the cabinet to go into quarantine as, pre- as a precautionary measure until they had been tested. But the ministers didn't find that necessary. Um, 
One of the other ministers present was Kasia Olungen, and uh, as we know, she was appointed last week as a verkenner, uh, meaning that she would lead the initial talks with poli- political leaders to find a new coalition following last week's election. And in that role, she met with all 17 political leaders in the Stadthouderskamer on Monday and on Tuesday. But on Thursday morning, moments before she uh, she had a meeting with Mark Rutte and Sigrid Kaag, Olongen stepped out of the building, uh, surprising all the journalists present there, um, stepping into her chauffeur's car, and she she you know she drove off. Um, she had to cancel the meeting uh, because she too was tested positive with coronavirus, proving that self-quarantining after being in the presence of someone who was tested positive and not meeting with 17 politicians was probably the smartest thing to do after all. Yeah. The second verkenner, Annemarie Joritsma, stepped out uh, minutes later and she told journalists that despite all of this, she was not planning on self-quarantining because, like in the ministerial council, a one and a half meter distance was maintained throughout the meetings. And still, Mark Rutte keeps wondering why people find it hard to follow the rules. Yeah, because you can always find, it turns out you can always find a rule that uh, that lets you off the hook, basically. Yeah. If, if, you, look, if you look hard enough. Yeah. Because the first, the first reaction everyone had when a long contested positive was, well, why was she working in the first place when she's waiting for a test result? So yeah. everyone else I know who's taken a test has, has stayed home, like the teacher of my... Uh, yeah, my children's teacher. I mean, she, she took a coronavirus test and had to stay off work, and the children had to stay home or go to other classes, even though she kept distance in the classroom all this time. But uh, you know, somehow, apparently, this rule then uh, suddenly came to light when uh, it turned out that Longcon had, uh, yeah, had still been turning up for work. The rule is apparently that if you take a precautionary test, so you don't show symptoms, but you have been in the present uh, presence of someone who was tested positive, then you are not supposed, or at least you're not um, uh, uh, highly advised to uh, to stay at home. You are yeah. allowed to go outside. But still, if you are had been in the presence of, of someone with coronavirus and you're meeting with all these very important politicians, uh, you know, 17 times a day, 17 times mm. in two, two days, then probably the smartest thing is just to uh, move your meeting to Zoom or... Um, or, or find another way, or postpone it at least. And yeah, uh, that seemed think. to be the smartest thing after all. Yeah, Yeah, and uh, as I said, there was actually more upheaf surrounding this story, but you will hear about this uh, in the next segment, because uh, if you thought the Suez Canal was the site of the biggest clusterfuck this week, you were wrong. It was the <laughs> Binolf. <laughs> Indeed it was. This week, talks to form the next coalition government started, stalled, moved online and then had to reboot when the people in charge resigned. We'll bring you news of that, as well as the latest on the pandemic, a mass leak of car owners' data and a dismal start to Rania's World Cup qualifying campaign. So, yeah, not much good news this week. No, <laughs> but luckily we don't have to boycott the uh, World Championship in Qatar anymore. Yeah, we right? fixed that problem. Yeah, we fixed that problem. <laughs> We are a week after the election and already plenty of stuff has happened to fill an entire episode. Uh, to start with, the final results are in and after the votes in Amsterdam were counted, Mark Rutte's favorite day party did not win 35 but 34 seats and Sigrid Kaars D66 gained an extra seat and now has 24. The rest of the results remained the same as last week. The preference votes were also published last week. Uh, usually people vote for the party leader, but officially MPs are elected individually and so low-ranked uh, candidates can still win a seat if they have enough votes. This was managed by three women, Lisa Westervalt and Kauta Bouchalit, both of GroenLinks, and Marieke Koekoek of Newcomer Volt. 
Also interesting was the differences between the number one and the number two of a few parties. Forum for Democracy leader Thierry Baudet won 224,000 votes, and that's only 2,500 more than his number two, former VVD MP Wiebren van Haga. So yeah, that will be probably have an impact on the hierarchy in that party, I guess. I hope, yeah, because did, I... Did, did, do you think they might split, Paul? Is there any history of that in the form of democracy? No, there's no history of splitting in form for democracy, and also no history of splitting uh, with uh, Van Haga personally. Indeed, so no, there's, yeah, yeah. There's no history of him uh, to, uh, taking a seat and going off to form his own party. So. Exactly, and Cherry Baudet no doesn't mind that at all. He is a big no. supporter of seat snatchers. So um, yeah. Yeah. Now I already bought a, a an industrial quantity of popcorn uh, in preparation of this. So um, I think that's very wise. That's very wise indeed. Um, also interesting was uh, the CDA, the number two of uh, the CDA. Peter Omzicht won 340,000 votes. That's 100,000 votes less than leader Wopke Hoekstra. That sounds like quite a difference, but uh, it is unprecedented, almost unprecedented, I think, in the CDA's history. Um, mm. It is, uh, yeah, a m- remarkable achievement by a number two. And uh, all the new MPs will be installed on March 30th. Can we have a minute as well to talk about a map, the map of the uh, the Trader Kammer? Have you seen this? I the, have the seen plan, that, yeah. The plan for where the MPs are seated. Did, yeah. did anything uh, jump out at you about it? Because it's always an enormous jigsaw puzzle now. You've got to fit 17 MPs into blocks yeah. in a 150-seat chamber. And the chamber itself is divided into kind of six blocks of 25 yeah. So it's always a bit of um, a game of Tetris, basically, to fit them all in. Yeah, it really is. Where and they want to be. Yeah. The, there are uh, six, well, there are actually 12 uh, front benches, but uh, two of them are always belong to the same party. So the mm. six largest parties have a right to, uh, uh, you know, have their benches on the front row. Um, yeah. But um, smaller parties, they also need a bench on one of the aisles, for example, because um, uh, during a debate, uh, they need to... Uh, uh, be able to move quickly to the interruption microphone. Um, on the other hand, there are also other um, things to uh, to take into account. For example, uh, Forum for Democracy and Ja 21, would you like to have them next to each other, for example? That's probably not the wisest thing to do. Um, yeah. And also the parties... Um, looking from the from the chair, um, uh, the left wing parties are all uh, seated on the left side of the chamber, and then fans sort of out to to the uh, to the uh, uh, to the extreme right, uh, yeah. which is coincidentally <laughs> where the PVV is seated. Yeah, it's a very literal interpretation, isn't it? You've got the Socialist Party on the far left, and then swinging round to the uh, PVV on the far right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Kind of Squares of what, yeah, 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 squares of the, the the political language, and then in the middle you have Fefede and Zester, who are expected to be uh, the, 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 the like the central pillars of the of the new coalition. Exactly. Even though so, I would have expected the CDA not to be seated next to the PVV, with the I would expect the VVD there and the CDA yeah. in between Zester and VVD, but for some reason they they uh, they swapped that around. I'm uh, yeah, not sure I why. That, but, I guess that's uh, really just to give the CDA front row seats. Which, uh, yeah, but you can just uh, you can just swap the VVD and the CDA, and then you yeah. have to you know move uh, move other seats around. But I think that's the more logical uh, thing to do. Yeah, I know that they, 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 the one party that wasn't unhappy with where they ended up was Fault. They felt they were too far over to the left. Um, so the map was the, so the the plan was redrawn, and Fault ended up even further on the left. They're now on the extreme <laughs> left, right at the back as well. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they are now considered uh, by the by the chair by Kadisha Rip as an extreme left wing party. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't make anyone ha- everyone happy, but uh, I think they managed uh, managed it pretty well. 
yeah, I think they've done a decent job in the yeah. end. It looks very pretty anyway, uh, the map. And how about the formation process? Uh, do we have a new cabinet yet? We wish. No, <laughs> this is going to take uh, a long time, as as expected. Um, but as we said last week, Kasia Alungren, uh, the Interior Minister of D66, and Annemarie Joritsma, the leader of the VVD in the Senate, were appointed as verkenners, or scouts. We I think we decided to, uh, to, to translate... Uh, that word yep. uh, too, yeah. Um, that gives them the task to lead the talks of the first stage of the formation process. And basically they're trying to find the most likely coalition to succeed. Um, and usually there's only one for Kenner, but this time we have two. Uh, that's also interesting. I think it was uh, Deze Sester who insisted on uh, a for Kenner of their own party to be added to that as well. And that uh, I think the VVD was very happy to accept that because you know now it's a joint endeavor instead of just uh, uh, only the VVD responsible for um, for for the uh, for the verkenning. Yeah. Um, on Monday and Tuesday, uh, the Verkenners invited all 17 party leaders for coffee and to discuss how they think the next coalition should look like and under which terms and conditions they were prepared to join one, if any. Yeah, and uh, it, uh, I, I like the detail that um, all 17 parties got coffee, but only the three newcomers uh, got a little <laughs> biscuit as well. Yeah, I think they got a little cake, bit uh, a <laughs> cake, yeah, yeah, a buck, yeah. 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 And the others, uh, the others didn't. Yeah, so yeah, uh, the others had to bring their own. So yeah. that was nice. So, Paul, what what is it that the parties actually want then? Well, very uh, very nice for you to join us. Uh, after all, uh, the technical difficulties were resolved, so uh, that I'm very happy uh, that you are here. Um, yeah, what the party wants, uh, we can only guess because, uh, yeah. They're, the talks are in secret, but they do um, talk to uh, reporters when they uh, leave the building. And they also uh, send letters to the Verkenners and sometimes they publish it and uh, share it with the media. So uh, to start with, Prime Minister Mark Rutte uh, uh, told reporters as he was going inside on uh, Monday morning that his preferred coalition would be with VVD, CDA, D66 and, surprise, surprise, Ja 21, the newcomer that was formed by Form for Democracy members after the party collapsed over anti-Semitic text messages among its members in November. Um, additionally, Ja 21 has a substantial number of seats in the Senate, as Rutte pointed out, and that gives the, the, this hypothetical coalition almost a majority in that chamber. Uh, Rutte's suggestion, however, was immediately shut down by D66 leader Sigrid Kaag, whose party uh, well, almost has diametrically uh, opposed op opinions uh, in many fields with uh, Ja21, such as climate change, migration and the EU, she said, I don't see that happening. Uh, and Kaag, on the other hand, wants, um, uh, 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 is much more prone to form a coalition with one of the more progressive parties, such as PvdA or GroenLinks. Yeah, this seemed, this had the feel of a kind of tactical move here by Greta, yeah, didn't it to me? Very that, transparent that, 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 he, he knew he knew fine well that Yair Twinter would not be accepted by Kach, but it was kind of forcing Kach's hand where he's saying to her, if you don't want Yair Twinter, who do you want then? Because then yeah, the, 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 that would give him an opportunity to shoot down her suggestion because she didn't put anyone forward. No. So she she, 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 she she saw that one coming, you know, so, so yeah. It was all very transparent, I thought. Yeah, yeah. The next we had PVV leader Geert Wilders. He wants a right-wing oriented coalition of PVV, CDA, VVD, FVD and JA21, many parties. Um, but VVD and CDA have already said many times before that they will not be willing to cooperate with the PVV again. 
Um, and then we have CDA leader Wopke Hoekstra. He said he finds it undesirable to join a liberal bloc of D66 and VVD. And it's up to them to invite the CDA to the table. Um, it's generally expected that CDA will join a coalition, though. Uh, VVD, D66 and CDA uh, are the three parties we will henceforth be calling the motor bloc, just like we did in 2017. Mm. Um, together, they make up 73 seats. That's only three seats short of a majority. So they... Uh, basically just require one more party to join a coalition of these three. But Rob Koekstra is playing a little bit hard to get now. Yeah, that, that, he's suddenly gone coy, hasn't he? And it's, obviously, when you look at the mass, you, given that uh, uh, that both Fefe Day and Dezer Zestig have ruled out uh, bringing Geert Wilders in, then the CDA is unavoidable. You cannot have a coalition really without them. Um, but but they're also in a weakened position. So Hookstar, I guess, is hoping that he's he's making a requirement for the other parties to invite him in early. Yeah, he wants to be on the table um, uh, as soon as possible. Yeah, he's, he's kind of said he doesn't he doesn't want them to draw up a deal and then or, or to start talks and then invite him later. He wants to be in from the start, yeah. and he'll get his way, I think, because the, 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 there's no alternative to the CDR exactly as a third partner. So that gives the CDR quite a substantial, quite a good um, uh, negotiation position even though they lost so many seats yeah and next we have the left-wing parties both pvda and GroenLinks have stated before that they will not join a coalition without the other but on monday this commitment sounded less strong liliana plumer of uh, the labor party said that she was willing to take responsibility and GroenLinks leader jesse klaver did not mention the other left parties by name but instead talked about a coalition as progressive as possible, which could also mean just uh, him and Deza's sister, I guess. FVD leader Thierry Boudet said he wants a right-wing minority coalition of his party and PVV, adding that he doesn't count CDA or the VVD as a right-wing party. Uh, Partij voor de Dieren leader Esther Auerhans said she doesn't want to form a coalition with parties that don't do enough against climate change. And she uh, yeah, basically said that she means, means parties such as the VVD and the CDA. So we will not see uh, the Partij voor de Dieren back in a coalition, I guess. It's all a lot of posturing, isn't it, really? I mean, when you think about it, it's pretty obvious we're going to get the same big three and uh, pay van de A. Yeah, it looks like it. But that is the most likely combination. Um, there's just this slight wrinkle that uh, PFDA and Cruel Links have sort of pledged to work together, but it seems a fairly loose commitment that. Yeah, if you think about the, the notes that we saw yesterday um, that mm. were floating around, then it seems they're not that tied to each other after all. Or maybe they are. I don't know. But Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of, I mean, we're, we're saying that that, that, that that sort of backfired a little bit, hasn't it? But because these notes came out and um, uh, yeah, there, there was that line in saying the two left-wing parties weren't committed to each other, that sort of made them both uh, actually underline their commitment more strongly uh, as, as a response. So that, yeah, it might be now that it's going to be harder to prize them apart than it would have been uh, before Alonquim made that blunder. Yep, I agree. Um, yeah, last uh, we had uh, Gertjan Segers. Uh, well, we have many, many, many more parties, of course, uh, that uh, that uh, went to went uh, to have a cup of coffee with the uh, with the Verkenners, um, uh, but we will not mention them all because otherwise we will sit here uh, the rest of the day. Uh, but Gertjan Segers is the last one I will mention, and he said that he wants to take a constructive approach. So he does not he's not ruling out uh, joining a coalition, but he said only under the condition that the most sensitive issues are 
are addressed. And he's talking here about uh, the medical ethical topics such as abortion and euthanasia, which his party and Deza Sesta completely disagree on. And in the previous coalition where uh, Christine was a part of, it was decided uh, to agree to disagree basically and to put these uh, topics to rest and basically uh, put them in the freezer. But Segers is uh, now not willing to take this approach again uh, this time. Yeah, not least because the freezers are now full up, filling up with uh, AstraZeneca <laughs> vaccines. So there's no space for controversial uh, political exactly. topics as well. Yes. But yeah, and also I think Deza Zesta are less prepared to, to, to make that kind of arrangement, yeah. especially as they feel like they're stronger, you know, that they've won from the elections in the, in the Dutch media parlance and therefore they yeah, that they shouldn't be bound by the CEU as much as they were last time. So yeah, Even though I they didn't, they did manage to, to get a lot of um, these uh, uh, laws passed uh, on medical ethical issues because the donor law was passed in this uh, yeah. cabinet term and also the um, end of life um, uh, law as well, I think, right? It, it's, uh, it started, I think. Um, it the, started. They put it's... the law before Parliament. Oh. It hasn't been passed. What they no. did do is right at the end, after the coalition collapsed, uh, they managed to get through a law scrapping the five-day waiting limit for or the, the five-day waiting period for abortion, which yeah, obviously so, the CEU uh, was dead against. So they says us want a lot of a uh, lot of points there, uh, especially yeah. given the fact that uh, uh, they were in a coalition with the Christian Union and yeah. the CDA. So, so to make it as simple as possible, uh, d- d- w- 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 what are the main coalition options now? Uh, I think we have four options here. Uh, we have uh, the Motorblok plus GroenLinks plus PvdA. That's uh, the first uh, option. Uh, uh, that is assuming that GroenLinks and PvdA uh, are committed to their promise to uh, to join a coalition together. Uh, this coalition will have 90 seats in the Tweede Kamer and 42 in uh, the Eerste Kamer. So in both houses, a majority. Uh, then the next uh, coalition is the Motorblok plus Ja 21, uh, that has 76 seats in the Tweede Kamer and 36 in the Eerste Kamer. So that's uh, just uh, one seat away from a majority in, in the Senate. Uh, the third option is the Motorblok plus the Christian Union, that's the current coalition. They will have 78 seats in the Tweede Kamer and uh, not a majority in the Senate with 32 uh, seats. And the fourth coalition is one without the CDA. Um, every coalition without the CDA we call a purple coalition. I don't know mm. why, but that's what it's called. And this coalition um, uh, uh, is called uh, Purple Plus, uh, and that is VVD, D66, PvdA, GroenLinks, and Volt. Uh, together, they have 78 seats in the Tweede Kamer, but you know they have uh, it's a five-party coalition, so that's quite a lot, and only 33 seats in the Senate, so not a majority yeah. there. Yeah, I, I can't see Rutte going for a coalition with those three small parties. No, me neither. No, no. That seems uh, unlikely. Yeah. Okay, so we've had these two days of exploratory talks. So that means uh, all the 17 parties have given their view, and now we can move smoothly through to the next stage, right, Paul? Yes. No. <laughs> no. They're going to have no. to start all over again. And why? Yeah. Um, because, yeah, we had this uh, OPEF segment, uh, but there was more OPEF, I promise that. And indeed, uh, that was the case. Verkenna Kasia Alongen was tested positive with coronavirus and she had to leave the third day of talks before it even began. But as she was walking towards her car, she passed dozens of photographers who were waiting outside for Mark Rutte's arrival. Uh, but the minister responsible for the secret services forgot to cover her confidential notes, accidentally sharing them with the rest of the world. And these notes were quite 
quite explosive. One yeah. line stood out. It said, position Omtzigt, job elsewhere. And Omtzigt is, of course, the popular CDA MP, who is known to be very critical about the cabinet, but also of his own party. He played, for example, an instrumental role in the uncovering of the child benefit scandal, which led to the cabinet's resignation. And he is therefore not always on good terms with the cabinet, but also not with his party, because, you know, uh, remember that he disturbed last year's leadership election of the CDA when he unexpectedly decided to run against Health Minister Hugo de Jonge. And earlier this week, there were also reports about a silent campaign within the CDA to get rid of Omtzigt. Quite a nasty, uh, nasty articles. I thought uh, they were compla- uh, CDA uh, members were complaining about uh, the mental health of Omtzigt, for example. He's currently at home due to overwork. So yeah, it seemed very yeah. It was, it was a real kind of uh, like sort of a backstabbing campaign, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. The moment he's the most vulnerable, they started to. Um, to talk yeah. about him in this way it was very 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 uh, very nasty indeed yeah um and but you know what's also very strange is that the position of an individual mp uh, apparently needs to be discussed in coalition talks and that just seems very strange if not unconstitutional especially because this was apparently going to be discussed with vvd and deze 60 which are totally different parties he's a member of the cda of course mm. and many political leaders demanded an explanation from the verkenners cda leader wopke hoekstra was the first uh, uh, to to respond on Twitter. He called the note bizarre, and an hour later it was announced that both Verkenners resigned. Their statement said that the notes were meant as input for the next round of talks and did not reflect the discussions which had already been held. Um, the two new Verkenners uh, were appointed as well. Soon after, they are Tamara van Ark of the VVD and Wouter Kolmees of D66. Apparently, the ministers for medical care and social affairs have nothing to do in the middle of a pandemic and economic crisis, but okay. And also, uh, isn't the, the ministerial council uh, sort of a, a super spreading event? Indeed. Um, right. So uh, yeah. perhaps Some more opportunities for the virus. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Um, and they announced that they will completely start over in an effort to regain trust because, you know, a lot of trust um, has been... Um, broken i think yeah it certainly has yeah yeah as somebody said on twitter and it's a good point i think uh, that the, the most likely coalition now is uh, the motor block uh, plus covid19 <laughs> which seems to be gaining seats at an exponent <clears throat> which seems to be gaining seats at an exponential rate that's a very good joke indeed <laughs> But uh, yeah, so, and, and we still haven't got to the bottom really, have we, of, of, of how this note or what the, this mysterious note about Omsicht in terms of what it means yep. and who, who put it on the agenda. And this yeah, very strange explanation that, uh, that, 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 it, that it doesn't reflect the previous discussions. Well, why on earth is it in the talks for the next round then? Yeah. Because surely that's, the, the, that's how it's meant to work. Yeah. And Rutte so. denied last night that he or Kaar uh, ever mentioned Peter Omsicht in one of the talks. Yeah. So, uh, but he also said that we're probably never going to find out what exactly happened because Kasia Longen resigned and she will no longer. She she's a minister, of course, but she can't be asked to question. She can't be questioned about her role as a verkenner in that uh, capacity. So yeah, it's um, it will always remain a mystery. I yeah, think. it will remain a mystery. Yeah, because uh, I suppose we should, we should point out uh, for absolute clarity that these verkenners are appointed by Parliament. Yeah. Um, and then they have to report back to Parliament. So there's responsibility is to the Tweede Kamer. So normally there would have been. A, a discussion or a debate about this report but now of course um, th- these two aren't reporting it's going to be two different for Kenners and as you say uh, therefore the, 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 these meetings they had over the course of last week um, are never going to be scrutinised now 
No. And um, yeah, it just. Uh, but th- these were just four words, right? Uh, yeah. we, we don't know what these words mean. It could also mean that uh, Peter Omzicht was going to get a cabinet position, for example, because that's also a job elsewhere. Uh, that seems a bit far stretched, though. But um, uh, uh, it can mean anything, and we just don't know what it means. But it just yeah. seems very strange, especially in the light of this uh, backstabbing campaign that we saw earlier this week. Yeah, you can sound, you can you can understand now, can't you? Why Mark Rutte is such a fan of uh, not taking <laughs> notes during meetings? <laughs> exactly, and he is always carrying these binders, right? He he always yeah. takes care that and every document is hidden away or or doesn't exist. And yeah, uh, yeah that just seems to be a, a, a indeed in hindsight a very smart uh, yeah. strategy. Indeed. Presumably, he just walks around with binders that are empty because he never takes any notes, but uh, just to look yeah. important. Yeah, there, there was there was a nice move by Hamer yesterday. Yeah. Actually, I think uh, on social media. <laughs> Yeah, where, 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 where they advertised uh, this, uh, where they advertised this black document folder saying uh, useful if you don't want people to look at your notes. Yeah, so and and they also said also for sale in the Hague. They said, yeah, <laughs> yeah very yeah. nice. The lockdown will continue to April the 20th with one concession, which is that the curfew is being extended to 10 p.m. Woo-hoo! That was the sum total. Yeah. <laughs> That was the sum total of a press conference given by Mark Rutte and Hugo de Jonge this week, where they had to backtrack on earlier promises to look at reopening cafes or allowing people to travel during the May school holiday. None of that's going to happen now, because in the meantime, the number of infections has started going up again. On Thursday, 7,740 new cases were recorded. That's the highest number since the start of January, and it means the average for the week is now uh, above 7,000 a day. And hospital emissions have gone up by around 9% in the last week as well. Rutt has also extended the advice not to travel abroad until the middle of May, so no Easter holiday breaks, no May school holiday trips either, and he said the fastest way to come out of lockdown was to stick to the rules, just like Kaiser <laughs> Alonhan. Yeah, it wasn't vaccination meant to be the route out of the lockdown. Yeah, yeah, vaccination is uh, supposed to be the way out of lockdown. Um, but the health minister, and until last week the most hapless deputy prime minister, Hugo de Jonge, did give an update on the vaccine schedule. Uh, the pace is being stepped up through April and May so that everyone over 60 should have had their first shot by May the 15th. I repeat, May the 15th, that's six weeks away. The over 60s are going to get vaccinated. People over 40 can expect their jabs in June, and by July everyone should have been invited to receive their first dose. De Jonge was grilled by several MPs uh, during a debate in Parliament on Wednesday about the pace of vaccines. He was asked in particular why the second dose wasn't being delayed so that more people can get their first shot in earlier, which is what's happening in countries like the UK and Israel where infection numbers have come down uh, much faster. Ernst Kaupers, the uh, ubiquitous head of the National Acute Care Network, is also a fan of this strategy. But de Jonge said he'd been advised on several occasions by the Medical Council that that wasn't a sensible approach because a single dose doesn't offer full protection. But the government is changing its vaccination strategy for the 560th time. This time it's going to make more vaccines available to people over 60, including the Janssen vaccine and AstraZeneca. Ha! AstraZeneca! AstraZeneca, (laughs) What's the score there? Yeah, well, where do we start with AstraZeneca? They can't get out of the news at the moment, do they? Um, one small detail we'll, we'll clear away first of all is there was a survey by the side effects uh, specialists, uh, LAVEB, of women under 65 who've been vaccinated, and that suggests that side effects are more common with AstraZeneca than with Pfizer. Uh, we should stress this is about uh, normal routine side effects, nothing alarming, but it's things like uh, tiredness, headaches, or a fever lasting one or two days. Uh, around about 40%, I think, of people who've had the AstraZeneca jab uh, have experienced these. Um, so, yeah, 
that, that might be a thing to look out for if you have the AstraZeneca vaccine. That if you have a slight fever for 24 hours, it's quite normal. More intriguing is the story of the Halix vaccine factory in Leiden. Uh, that got caught up in the standoff between the UK and the European Union this week. Uh, a lot of kind of accusations back and forth between the EU, suggesting the UK has been hoarding vaccines or taking doses that were originally allocated to the EU. The UK, in the meantime, has accused Brussels of vaccine nationalism and blocking the supply chain. And the manufacturer is suspected of uh, some sharp business, uh, basically offering the same doses to both parties and then kind of playing them off against each other. A very interesting report this week in the Financial Times about uh, what they call the Dutch Mystery Factory, which is uh, the Harlex factory, which is uh, well worth reading. It noted that AstraZeneca had been uh, kind of rather puzzlingly uh, dragging its feet on asking the European Medicines Agency to approve uh, the factory for an export license. And the European Commission's suspicion is that they were deliberately doing this so that the vaccines weren't available to the EU and they could just be shipped off to the UK. But then the British medical regulator told NSA that it hadn't received or approved any supplies either. So the mystery deepens. Um, the Dutch government said this week it would block exports from Leiden to the UK unless Britain agreed to provide more vaccines to the UK EU. It ended up with a big uh, round of talks uh, in Brussels uh, between the two countries, after which they both released a statement pledging to cooperate better on vaccines. And then the very next day, as if by magic, AstraZeneca submitted a request to the MA to approve vaccines from the Halix factory. So, hmm. yeah, uh, that's all very mysterious and still leaves a lot of unanswered questions. <laughs> it's like the Binnenhof, but then uh, with vaccines. It is extraordinary, that whole story. I mean, nobody had heard of this Halix factory in Leiden. Suddenly they were there. They were incredibly important. They had stockpiles. But there's there's more. There's also these vaccines they make in bulk there. And then they go off to Italy to be bottled and then sent. I mean... I think it really shows the kind of enormous web that that Europe is in when it comes to you know making vaccines at all. It's not simply a question of developing a vaccine and and, it, and it's there in the shops. It's an extraordinarily long, complicated process to actually get them out of there. Yeah, it's all very strange and murky, and it, it kind of shows that. I think kind of, uh, I saw a couple of um, economists talking about it on news here last night, uh, saying that the European Union has been a bit naive here, where they the, the European Union is kind of based on the idea of cooperation and uh, and due process and everyone working in good faith. But unfortunately, other parties have maybe not been operating in quite such good faith, and uh, it, it seemed very strange that AstraZeneca um, were approved in Britain very early on in December, so they got a head start on the vaccines, they got the jump on everybody else, and yet it didn't actually ask for approval for its vaccine in Europe until I think uh, February and for this factory which has been producing vaccines seemingly for several months and yet they didn't actually ask the regulator again it took a long time to ask for approval I think they withdrew the request a couple of times as well in the, in the course of the process it's all very murky and strange but the upshot is basically that, that Europe now is lagging well behind on vaccination and part of the reason for that everyone's pointing the finger at the governments but the problem is you cannot vaccinate with vaccines that aren't there and the vaccines aren't being delivered so part of the, the responsibility is with the, is with the producer and supplier who seems to be who seems to have found it much easier to deliver vaccines to the UK than to Europe but also of course the blame is with the governments that they seem to be spending the summer basically haggling on the price of the vaccine rather than just making sure they had enough stocks um, and then of course uh, the European Union as well itself just seems to have got into an almighty muddle uh, trying to scrupulously make sure everyone gets their fair share and in the meantime uh, the vaccines have gone elsewhere yeah it's a mess, I think, a total mess, really. And, and again, something that you know will take years probably to unravel what actually happened, the bottom line. There are a lot of unanswered questions this week everywhere with the, with the coalition, with this and the big new data leak in the Netherlands. 
And that actually is more than a more of a dike breach, I think, than a small hole. Um, according to broadcaster NOS, private information from millions of car owners is being offered for sale on the internet. They uh, got this information. Hackers managed to steal it from the website of a company which provides IT services for, for garages. If you've got a car, you probably get a letter from your garage every year reminding you it's nearly time to take it through its annual Ape Car checkup to make sure it's still working. And that's a service that this company, RDC, at the centre of the leak, was providing for garage owners. And that's the info which has now apparently ended up with hackers who are asking the bargain price, I would have thought, of $35,000 for the lot. So how many people have had that information compromised? It's not actually very clear. The person who tried to sell the info to an NOS reporter online claimed that it had details of about 7.3 million people But of course, a number of the names appear on the database several times. If you get a new car, for example, you'll be on there more than once. The list is also thought to contain 2.5 million email addresses. And the company at the centre of the of the leak says this figure seems kind of realistic. So it's a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people. And what details are being uh, leaked? It's not just that it's your car registration, but also things like your date of birth and your address, right? Everything connected to your to your car, basically. Your address, your email address, your date of birth, information about your car. There may also be information there from insurance companies. It's not very clear. How many clear. times you visit a Mac drive? Oh, that would be very bad, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that'd be terrible. Yeah. Well, they'll they, yeah. condemn you, Paul. Yeah. But <laughs> especially as they say some of the information is old. So it could be very out of date how long how many times you've been to that Mac drive. Um hmm. so it it's uh, NOS was able to you know, it kind of tried to bite and got hold of some of the information. Fifty eight thousand car owners in uh, Amsterdam, it got their details. And it said that even if the information about the cars is out of date, you know, it could still be relevant after all. You know, if you're if you've got a fancy Maserati or something, and you've still got it, thieves who bought the list would know exactly where to find it. For example, and it also gives you lots of information that you can use if you're trying another sort of scam as well. So, what does the company RDC say? Well, it's reported the leak to the privacy watchdog as it has to by law, but it actually says it's not aware of any recent breaches in its security. But you know, I think what really matters here is that the leak is further evidence of just how vulnerable we are when it or when yeah. it comes to security standards at, at companies that we give our information to. And the privacy watchdog, the AP, can issue large fines, and I mean large. The credit agency BKR was fined eight hundred and thirty thousand euros for not restricting who could see its data, for example. But you know, it's still too early to say in this case what actually happened and if a big fine is relevant or where the list actually came from yeah and the ap seems to be a very have a very big workload uh, for not really the resources to cope with it either you know for, for, i saw stories this week about people who need approval for work they do that uh, deals with sensitive information just taking a long time for the ap to work through their dossier because they just don't really have the resources to back up uh, what they're supposed to do so that's another problem yeah no that's absolutely true i mean every time there is a data breach involving your company you are supposed to report it to the ap and that could be you know me advertently sending your email address to somebody gordon you know technically yeah. that's a breach so i mean they have an awful lot of stuff to get through yes 
It's time again to say thank you to all our wonderful patrons who keep this podcast on the road and promise that we will never pass your details on to the local backstreet car mechanic. <laughs> we are very grateful for your continuing support through this pandemic and as ever we'll give new patrons a shout out and answer your questions about life, politics and whether we'll ever have a government again. This week we welcome one new patron, Larissa. Thank you very much to you for your donation. And also hello to Mark Price, who joined our gang in December, but uh, only got in touch with us last week. Uh, We think our message must have been delivered by AstraZeneca. (laughs) Mark is from England. He moved to the Netherlands 18 years ago. He now lives in Haarlem, which he calls the gateway to the north. Uh, But given that the north in question is places like Den Helder and Eimauden, you might want to keep that gateway shut, Mark. You wrote in the script Alkmaar, but I think Alkmaar is a pretty nice city, though. It's okay, Alkmaar. Yeah, I changed my mind about Alkmaar. It's got all the cheese. We want the cheese to keep flowing. Exactly. Guys, 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 there's no cheese made in Alkmaar. No, it's only sold in Alkmaar, isn't it? That's where the market is. It's a tourist show. It's not real. It's totally fake. They don't have anything to do with cheese up there. It's only put on half. Half the year, after all, it's not done in the winter when there's no tourist. Yeah, but the, the football team's called the Cheeseheads. How can no, you say got nothing? Seriously, to do with no cheese, no cheese in Alkmaar. It's a con. <laughs> the Cheeseheads will be writing in in their droves to correct you. Good. <laughs> uh, Mark says, "I really enjoy the podcast. It's kept me entertained every week during the lockdown." Uh, he also tells us that moments after he listened to last week's podcast, where we were discussing social faux pas, like turning up at someone's house uh, without an appointment, um, a-, a friend of his turned up on his doorstep unannounced. Oh, really? Yeah. So, hmm. uh, rather lovely, sweet coincidence. And he says, in her defence, she brought booze, which is uh, very gazellic. So I think yeah, that's exactly. uh, that's acceptable. If you'd like to become a sponsor of the podcast, we can't promise it'll make old acquaintances appear on your doorstep bearing booze, but who knows? Visit patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dutchnewsnl. If Johan Krauf was still alive, he'd have been turning in his grave, as the Dutch national team marked the fifth anniversary of his passing with an ignominious defeat in Istanbul. I totally understood that reference. It's an old joke that I think Morecambe and Wise hmm. made it first, probably. A deflected shot, a penalty and a soft goal straight after half-time gave Turkey a 3-0 cushion in their opening World Cup qualifier. And although the Dutch briefly threatened a comeback with two goals in a minute with a quarter of an hour to play, the game was settled a bit later by the only moment of real class, which was an unerring free kick by Buat Ilmiz, the rejuvenated 35-year-old Turkish striker. That completed his hat-trick for him and a 4-2 victory for Turkey. So Iranian will need to pick themselves up first. Uh, the good news for them is that their next two opponents are uh, less taxing. It's Latvia in Amsterdam on Saturday and then the, the, the minnows or rather the plankton of uh, Gibraltar next <laughs> well, week. Well, at this point, I would not be so sure if Iranian would be able to beat those uh, even at home. Is it is it an away game against Gibraltar? Because I just saw that the sort of pubs and everything are open there again now. Yeah, they're allowing a very small number of supporters in the stadium, I think. Uh, although that will be half the population of Gibraltar, probably. <laughs> yeah. Do they have a stadium in Gibraltar? Well, they have a pitch. I don't know exactly how big the stadium is. Uh. Um, I'm guessing they'll have uh, some seating around it. I, I don't know. I don't, as a Scotland have played in Gibraltar and just about managed to win. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think the Dutch can manage it. Which was probably the best result by Scotland ever. Uh, well, but better than we do against the fair ones. Yeah. So. <laughs> Paul, Paul, you know we all have Scottish connections here. That's appalling. <laughs> Dreadful. Yeah. Uh, it's not just football, though. There's also a bit going on. Again, dodgy stuff in the world of darts, I understand. Yeah, the, the, the slings and arrows are flying in strange directions. And if someone's <laughs> making an outrageous fortune... Uh, so the Public Prosecution Service has started an investigation into allegations of match-fixing involving Dutch players. 
Last year, six Dutch players reported attempts to ask them to uh, rig a match to the International Darts Authority, the DRA. But the organisation thinks many more players are being implicated uh, because of the growing sums of money that are being bet on matches. And now that tournaments are being held online, it's become even easier for criminals to tamper with matches undetected. NOS spoke to several players, including Niels Zonnefeld, who said he'd been contacted by a match fixer offering him money to lose a game. He got a message saying, it's a virtual game, so who's going to know? I have approached other players as well. Some strange telegram messages going around Hmm. in the world of darts, seemingly. DRA chairman Nigel Moa said, so far police had shown little interest in following up reports of attempted bribery, and he said if these people can do this with impunity, it will continue. They'll think maybe he'll bite, so it's worth a try. It's all go at the public prosecution department this week, isn't it? I mean, uh, I mean, the financial duck blood had a had a story about that officials are planning to take legal action against two Dutch timber merchants for their role in importing illegal teak. Yes, uh, it's the first time, actually, apparently, that officials have actually or company company bosses have actually faced criminal prosecution for this offence. And um, according to Chief Prosecutor Husram, it's a sign of a tougher approach to environmental crime. They actually face six years in jail. Wow. Just a smuggling wood. But, you know, smuggling timber does not seem to be the easiest thing to do, does it? No, I know it's rather large, isn't it? But according to the public prosecutor, it was brought into the Netherlands via the Czech Republic uh, in order to avoid an EU ban. And this is because it's impossible to say whether uh, timber from Myanmar is actually legal if it's been illegally chopped down or not. And nobody can agree. The rules and regulations are are very grey over there. So, uh, yeah, we don't actually, you know, know whether it was good timber or bad timber. But the fact that they've managed to do it is the bad thing. So, so you're never going to know whether your t- your rather nice teak coffee table is uh, made of uh, sustainable wood or not. So why is why has there been this change in policy to prosecute individuals uh, involved in the teak trade? Well, the public prosecutor told the FD that bringing in this illegal wood is actually a form of organised crime. He said there's a lot of money circulating in the illegal timber trade, and at the other side of the world, illegal felling is of course having a disastrous ecological impact. And the hardline actually apparently follows the publication of a government report which criticised the low priority being given to environmental crime at all levels of the legal sort of business, from the police, from local authorities to national government. And in fact, the report said the lack of focus on environmental crime is so serious, it's actually damaging public faith in the system. I'd have thought the most, uh, the safest way to import illegal timber is just to throw it in with a large shipment of cocaine into Rotterdam. Then it'll never get detected. <laughs> well, I don't know. They turn up tons and tons all the time at the moment. Actually, I mean, it's extraordinary. Bananas, squid, pineapples—they're all being used. Imagine timber would be so lucrative that they would try to hide it in a stack of, uh, of <laughs> cocaine. That would be uh, amazing, yeah. And we, we've had a few of these critical reports about the government recently, didn't we? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's to do with the fact that we're at the end of a government term or something, but they seem to be coming out. We have the environmental crime one, and now on Tuesday, the Dutch Safety Board published its review of the government's approach to dealing with factory farm fires, And it said, basically, the government's doing nothing and the time for voluntary agreements is over. Uh, The government, it said, put uh, economic interests of the farmers ahead of animal welfare, which is quite extraordinary when you think that 1.3 million animals have died in factory farm fires over the past seven years. And yet farmers are still not required to put sprinklers in their older barns 
especially considering these are the ones that are most likely to burn down. So again, another controversial, you know, critical report of the government and more recommendations. And we don't know. I mean, will factory farm fires become an issue in the coalition talks? Perhaps if the Partei from the Deere is on board or Green yeah. Links, they might be. But uh, yeah, or, or the CDR, given that they own a lot of uh, farms in in Brabant. Yeah, but they're the cost side, not the animal welfare side, if you like. Indeed, yeah, yeah, but maybe, maybe they would be reluctant to have more regulation of farms because they, they always go on about how farming is overregulated. Yeah, true, true. When your 400-meter-long, 200,000-tons container ship crashed into the embankment of the world's most important waterway, blocking all traffic through the canal and abruptly putting international trade to an absolute standstill at a cost of $400 million an hour, there's only one thing you can do. Call the Dutch. <laughs> Together with a Japanese company, a Dutch firm, Smit Salvage, has been appointed to refloat the Ever Given, which got stuck in the middle of the Suez Canal on Tuesday, causing an enormous tailback of hundreds of ships on both sides of the canal, which handles, uh, well, 12% of seaborne trade. A spokesman of Smith Selfridge said the first job is to determine exactly how entranced in the wall the ship is. The answer to that question will determine what comes next. But Smith Selfridge has already said they expect a combination of unloading, digging out and tugging the ship is required. In a worst case scenario, the entire ship needs to be unloaded, which can take up weeks. Smith Selfridge is a world-renowned salvage firm responsible for several of the most daring naval salvages, such as lifting a sunken Russian nuclear submarine in 2001 and removing fuel from inside the capsized Costa Concordia cruise ship in Italy in 2012. So yeah, another uh, thing I didn't realize the Dutch is, uh, are very specialized in, apparently. Yeah, I guess anything to do with waterways, uh, the, the, the Dutch, the logical choice, uh, right? Yeah, apparently, even though the Dutch didn't dig the uh, the Suez Canal, that was mostly done by slave labor. Perhaps uh, the, the, the Orange should boycott uh, the, the Suez Canal. Boycott the Suez Canal, yes, so yeah. refuse to accept any more deliveries. Yeah, yeah. In the midst of all the, um, uh, the, the this, this whole Suez, uh, second Suez disaster, you had an interesting detail, Paul, that uh, originally the Statue of Liberty was supposed to stand, uh, overlook the Suez Canal, right? Yeah, the the French initiator of the of the of the Statue of Liberty had envisioned it at the um, entrance of the Suez Canal at Port Said, I believe it's yeah. called. Um, but the uh, the Egyptians uh, weren't interested; it cost too much. So then he sort of traveled around the world trying to get rid of it, and he ended up in um, in the United States. And he managed to to sell it as a sort of gift from the French, even though uh, the American public had to pay for it. Nonetheless, uh, they put the head of the Statue of Liberty, for example, on display in New York. York and people could buy tickets and watch it or climb the torch and uh, that way it was funded. I think it's good to have a bit of good news this week, you know, rather than than sort of controversy. I mean, you know, good old Dutch there, you know, doing their bit for world trade again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Getting that Myanmar timber to uh, to Europe. indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Make sure it has a, a smooth passage. We have this has been the story that everyone's been talking about this week, right? Out beyond the Binnenhof, there's this enormous uh, how the captain of a ship somehow managed to uh, get, get, get this uh, massive container ship wedged in the Suez Canal, having previously seemingly drawn a massive crock and balls on the radar in the Dead Sea. <laughs> that was the other uh, development that. Uh, yeah. Uh, As that it was waiting to enter the canal, <laughs> it sort of 
drifted you know it was anchored but it drifted away and it's uh, at the at the vessel tracker you could see that that's <laughs> on a cock and balls <laughs> in gps yeah uh, very very oh yeah yeah that was a, it was a very nice little uh, extra detail indeed um but yeah the ship the, the canal is 300 meters wide which is quite a lot but the ship is 400 meters and yeah, yeah. it's just uh, it's blocking the entire canal it's just extraordinary yeah so we began with uh, with a massive meltdown at the binnenhof and we finished with one in the Suez canal but uh, yeah I think I think the Suez Canal is probably going to be sorted out faster than the next Dutch government, <laughs> even so. Indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Coalitions always take long, but 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 uh, salvaging ships, uh, the Dutch are very uh, uh, are very fast in uh, in managing that. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, turn that around. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the next podcast. My thanks to Paul Peters and Robin Pascoe. I'm Gordon Darich. The podcast is taking a break next week and we'll be back after Easter. Easter.